Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. What I'm talking about. You've been there. You've done that. You found out that they don't give t-shirts for it. Some of you are in the middle of depression right now. Some of you are, feel yourself slipping that direction because of what you are facing in your life. Some of you have come out of a long season of depression. And together, as a family, as a community, as a church, part of what we're accomplishing in this series is we're just acknowledging together that depression is a real and serious problem for us in our culture. Dr. Robert Sapolsky, who's a faculty member at Stanford University, a specialist in neurobiology who's written extensively about depression, he has this to say about it. He says, there are all sorts of exotic diseases out there, but there is nothing out there like depression. He says, depression is absolutely crippling. It's incredibly pervasive. Basically, depression is like the worst disease you can get. He says, if I had to define major depression in a single sentence, I would describe it as a biochemical disorder, means it has to do with chemicals inside of our bodies, with a genetic component, we talked about that last week, whose characteristic manifestation or its typical symptom is an inability to appreciate sunsets. He says, depression makes you lose your joy. It makes you feel like hope is unattainable. Depression is a profoundly unique challenge, and the big deal about it, the problem with it is that you can't imagine hope for a cure for your depression when the primary symptom of depression is that it takes away your hope. This is, it's, it's, it builds on itself. And unless you've experienced severe depression, there is no way that you can truly relate to the meaning, the sense of hopelessness that it brings with it. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, here we are on a day when we're celebrating the women who brought us into the world, and there's a huge percentage of us in the room, I'm talking to you men, who have no idea what it was that they went through to make that happen, right? There's no way that any of the men in the room are ever going to truly understand what that childbirth experience was like. The only thing we can do is express sympathy. And in the same way, those who haven't experienced severe depression have to listen and pay attention and believe the voices of the people who have gone through it, who are going through it, in order for us to understand just how serious this is. If you monitor online the hashtag, depression feels like, you'll hear people talking about their experiences and their feelings and what it was like to be in the cave. You'll hear descriptions like this. It's like dragging around a massive stone that's holding you back and weighing you down. When I'm in the absolute depths of depression, everything is an effort, everything. From something as big as going out and facing people to something as simple as just moving. 
As an analogy, a depression is a bit like being lost at sea with rough waters, trying to tread water, believing yourself to be entirely alone with no hope of rescue, and knowing that you're going to run out of energy soon. The people who have experienced this kind of severe depression consistently report that it, it builds on itself, it intensifies, it progresses, and it's a tiresome fight. It's a constant battle to keep depression from winning, to keep depression from consuming you. And when you find yourself in a battle for your mental health, when you find yourself experiencing a battle for your joy and your well-being, I think the best bet is to go into that battle with every tool that you have at your disposal. You remember the movie scene, right? The sword fight scene from The Princess Bride. You remember the fight between Wesley, or the dread pirate Roberts, as you may recall, and Inigo Montoya, which I have to say with that accent, just to be true to the movie. You remember this moment. There are two well-trained, well-studied, honorable swordsmen who have the utmost respect for one another but they have a job to do. Montoya has a job to do to prevent Wesley from catching up to Vicini and Princess Buttercup, and Montoya cannot afford to lose this fight, this moment, because he has a mission, a personal quest that he's on to find the six-figured man who killed his father, right? I mean, he's got somewhere to go after this fight is over. But on the other hand, Wesley, or Dread Pirate Roberts, has a fight of his own, a quest of his own, a quest to rescue Princess Buttercup, who is the love of his life. And so these two well-trained, well-studied, honorable swordsmen find themselves having to fight it out. They have a duel. High up on the cliffs of insanity, they joust with one another in a battle that seems so evenly matched that it could go either way until suddenly Wesley seems to start gaining the momentum. The advantage seems to start leaning his direction, and it looks like the fight is going Wesley's way, and then a smile creeps across Montoya's face. And those of you who remember the movie know exactly what's coming next, right? Wesley says, why are you smiling? And Montoya says, because I know something you don't. I'm not left-handed. And in that moment, he skillfully transfers his sword from the left hand to the right, and suddenly it's an all-new fight. And the momentum shifts back Montoya's way, and the fight is backing Wesley up into, literally into a corner where he admits that he's not left-handed either, and then he switches hands, and the whole thing goes on. You know, in Psalm 16, David, who would go on to become one of the kings of Israel and who faced some moments like this where he was backed into a corner fighting for his life, he wrote the following line. He said, I always put the Lord in front of me. I will not stumble because he is on my right side. Some of your translations say the Lord is at my right hand. And David was saying, I don't go into a fight. I don't go into a battle without all of the spiritual resources that God brings available to me. 
I don't go into a fight just trusting in my own abilities or his left-handedness. He says, I don't go into a fight trusting in myself. I want to avail myself of all of the power that God has to bring to bear on my behalf. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention and turn our trajectory for the remainder of this series to talking about spiritual resources and spiritual strategies for battling depression. Now, I want to remind you, and you're going to hear me say this every week in the series, so get used to hearing it. We are not trivializing, undermining, or minimizing the value and importance of mental health treatment in this series. It is really important for you to understand, I am not a mental health professional, and I recommend and Heritage recommends that anyone who's struggling with adverse mental health issues should seek professional help from a licensed counselor or a therapist, and we can help make that connection if that would be useful to you. In this series, I am intentionally steering clear of giving explicit mental health advice and instead, I'm focusing on spiritual health practices, the kinds of spiritual health practices that contribute to overall human wellness and play an important role in the battle with depression. We're talking about spiritual resources and practices that reduce the risk of depression and aid in recovery because I'm convicted, I'm convinced, I believe that a person who is pursuing a relationship with God has an advantage in this fight. A person who is trying to honor God with their life, trying to connect themselves to God, trying to give God authority and agency in their decision-making, that person has access to spiritual health resources that other people in the world don't know anything about. And so we're going to use our time together to visualize the spiritual power that can help us as followers of Jesus face depression more successfully. And we're basing our study on a depressive experience in the life of a man named Elijah found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd be thrilled for you to join me this morning in 1 Kings chapter 19. You can use the table of contents to find it. It's in the Old Testament portion of your Bible. It's a book of history that's ancient. I mean, we're talking about almost 3,000 years ago when these events happened. And when you get to, I want to get everybody up to speed, so let me just remind you that Elijah, this man we're studying about, was a spokesperson for God, which means that God used Elijah to communicate to the people of Israel. And in, in Elijah's ministry, in his life's work, he was constantly brought into conflict with the king and queen of Israel. In particular, the queen of Israel, Queen Jezebel, wanted Elijah to be killed. And she had her hitmen out looking for Elijah to bring him in so that he could be executed. And he fled. He heard about the threat. He knew about the risk. And so he fled to the south to escape Jezebel. And he found himself at a particularly special place. Place. He found himself at Mount Sinai, which was the legendary place in Israelite history where God delivered the law, including the Ten Commandments, to Moses centuries before Elijah was born. But when Elijah gets there, he's feeling defeated. 
He's feeling abandoned. He's feeling threatened. And in fact, earlier in this chapter, Elijah had prayed to God that his life would end. He had prayed to God to put him out of his misery, to put an end to his days, because Elijah could not see a reason to keep moving forward, a reason for hope. And so when he arrived at Mount Sinai, he spoke to God and he said this. He said, I have been so passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. I think he's speaking to God in a tone that says, God, I've been doing what you asked me to do. I've been trying. I have poured myself out. I have left everything on the field trying to make a difference on your behalf, and these losers aren't getting it. And he says to God, he says, they, they've torn down your altars. They've murdered your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah's saying, this is not working out the way I envisioned it working out. And he's panicky, and he's anxious, and he's got tunnel vision because all he can see, all he can focus on is just the circumstances that he can himself perceive and his own helplessness. He's thinking about his ineffectiveness and his inability to change anything about his situation. He's not seeing the whole picture. And this is one of the problems that commonly occurs with somebody who's experiencing depression, is a skewed perception of reality. The inability to see the bigger picture. Elijah wasn't seeing the whole picture and he wasn't considering the unseen spiritual forces that were at work on his behalf and on the behalf of the people of Israel. And so in this story today, God decides to remind him. Chapter 19, verse 11 says, the text tells us that the Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. And if you've studied some from earlier in your Old Testament, you know that this is sounding familiar. So a prophet of God standing on Mount Sinai and God's about to pass by and allow himself to be seen. I mean, this is almost exactly what Moses experienced all those centuries ago when he asked to see God and God said, you can't actually look at my face or you won't be able to tolerate that, but I'll cover you up with my hand and let you see my back and walk by. And so this is an, a repeat of what Moses experienced, but in Elijah's story, it says a very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. I envision this being that the wind was creating landslides that were cracking and echoing and falling over across the valleys and in the mountains that were surrounding that area. But the text says that the Lord wasn't in that wind. The wind came before the Lord. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. The ground shook, the earth quaked, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And verse 12 says, after the earthquake, there was a fire but the Lord wasn't in the fire, and after the fire there was a sound, thin and quiet. Your translation may say there was a gentle whisper or a still, small voice. But I want to remind you who Elijah is, because in this moment, when he's seen all of these powerful demonstrations of the, the dynamic majesty of God, 
Elijah is somebody who's seen a lot of this kind of stuff before. Everything we know about Elijah's life, every episode of Elijah's story that we have from prior to this moment is a story about Elijah seeing undeniable, life-changing encounters with the power of God. I mean, there were times when Elijah was out in the desert by himself. God had led him out there, and there was a serious drought, but God helped him to find water. And then when he didn't have anything to eat, God sent ravens that carried food to him so that he could be sustained through that time. There was another episode in Elijah's life where he was living in the home of this family who was hosting him, but they didn't have anything. They didn't have anything to eat. In fact, they were down to one serving of flour and one serving of oil, just enough to make one loaf of bread, and then they were going to be done. But because of God's sustenance, because of God's provision, that flour and that oil continued to regenerate, and it never ran out so that for weeks and months they had enough to eat. Elijah had seen the the power of God in the big showdown in 1 Kings 18 that we talked about where the prophets of Baal had a competition with Elijah and the one true God and he had seen as God had poured down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and the altar he had witnessed God's power and he had been in the middle of this experience where by God's instruction he predicted a drought and then he predicted the precise moment when the drought would end Every episode of Elijah's life up to this point is something that would make your jaw hit the floor, that would make you be amazed at the visible evidence of the existence and the power of God. Elijah had been used in some incredible ways. He was no stranger to the mighty works and the demonstrations of God's power. And so when he stood there in the mouth of the cave, and he witnessed the strong wind that triggered the landslides, it reminded him of the other things he knew about God. It reminded him of God's power over the weather. When he felt the earth shake beneath his feet and an earthquake rippled across the mountain, he was reminded of the other times when he had seen God do what nobody else could do. When he saw a fire suddenly ignite and then just as quickly as it had sparked, it extinguished itself, he was reminded of that fire from heaven that he had witnessed in that victorious moment at Mount Carmel. But then when the silence came, when the gentle whisper came, Elijah experienced a new dimension of God. He experienced a facet of God's character, a facet of God's power that he had not experienced before. And God was inviting Elijah into something different, inviting him deeper, inviting him to recognize that God's power and God's presence show up in ways that we haven't learned to see yet. Elijah was accustomed to the big exhibitions. He could... He could give glory and honor to God when the fire rained down, when the weather came in. He knew God's power over the elements, the weather, the fire, the rain. And maybe, maybe what Elijah was expecting was another big demonstration in that moment. Maybe he was hoping 
that God would strike Queen Jezebel mute or blind so that even she would be terrified to try to pursue Elijah anymore. Maybe he was hoping that God would use that power over the wind and the fire and the rain and the earthquakes. Maybe he was hoping God would use that to send signs throughout Israel that would frighten the people into obedience and get them to quit their spiritual apathy. Maybe Elijah's depression was springing up from his disappointment that God wasn't doing what he hoped God would do. But there on Mount Sinai, that day in the cave, Elijah was being reminded that God's presence doesn't only show up in the jaw-dropping moments, that God's presence doesn't only show up in the mind-changing, headline-worthy, miracle moments. Elijah was being reminded that God is present even when everything's quiet. That God's present even in the silence. That sometimes God speaks through a whisper and not through a shout. He was being reminded that when our prayers bounce off the ceiling, it doesn't mean that God's not hearing them. You know, right before today's message, we sang a song in here together that we call Waymaker. It's one of my favorite songs we're singing right now. In fact, it's one that I requested with Mateo that we could learn for this series because my favorite part of that song is the bridge that happens between the final versions of the chorus. And that bridge says, God, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. And I love those lyrics because they remind us that our perceptions don't limit God's presence. Our ability to perceive what God is up to does not put a boundary about what, around what God is up to. Our feelings are not reliable indicators. Our senses are not reliable gauges for God's protection and provision and presence. And the truth is, sometimes when God's speaking, sometimes when God is working, sometimes when God is acting, Sometimes when God is near and available, we miss it because we don't know what to look for. We don't know what to look for. And so there on the mountain, in the mouth of the cave, God showed up to Elijah in a brand new way, in the quiet of a whisper. And I keep talking about whisper and silence. The truth is we don't know how to translate that Hebrew word. It could be one or the other. We're not really sure which one is the right answer. But we know that when Elijah heard it, when he heard that quiet, he wrapped his face in his coat and he went out and he stood at the cave's entrance and a voice said to him, why are you here? Why are you here? And Elijah recognized that the Lord was there with him, that the Lord was passing by and it changed his perspective of God. He was learning that when God doesn't show up as spectacularly as we would design, when God doesn't show up as decisively as we want, it doesn't mean God's not there. It doesn't mean God's not involved, and it doesn't mean God's quit caring. And so when the Lord asked Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah gave the same word-for-word -word answer that he had given in verse 10. But even though I can't prove it, I suspect he gave it with a totally different tone. God, I've been trying. God, I've been trying to do what you asked. God, I've, I've been passionate about it. 
I've done it. I followed your instructions and I'm so confused. I'm so disappointed. I'm so scared. Uh, these people, they abandoned your covenant, God. They, they failed the promise that they made. And they've torn down your altars and they murdered your other prophets with the sword and now here I am and it seems like that's about to be what happens to me too and I'm scared about it. They're going to take my life. Come back next Sunday and we're going to talk about what God responded to Elijah's complaint. But this morning as we begin to close, what I want us to reflect on is that God invited Elijah to see the bigger picture. You see, when Elijah was running south, when he was running away from Jezebel, the voice that was looming loudest in his thoughts was the voice of the queen. The voice that he was hearing most prolifically, most profoundly, was the voice of the queen resonating in his head, and he knew her temper, and he knew her threat, and he knew that she wouldn't rest until his life had been extinguished. And so the one voice he kept hearing was Jezebel's voice saying, I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets of Baal. And then he made his way out there to the desert and he left his assistant behind and he was out there by himself and he had time to think and time to reflect and nobody was around. And the voice of failure started to catch some traction in his mind and in his heart and he reflected on everything he'd been through and everything he'd seen. He reflected on his own ministry and his own contributions to the work of God's invasion into Israel and he reflected on how despite his best efforts Israel was still going the wrong way and he felt ineffective and he felt weak and he felt like he was a disappointment to himself and probably a disappointment to God and his perception of himself stood in between his connection to God when the one voice he needed to hear whether he realized it or not the one voice he actually needed to hear was the voice of God he needed to have an encounter with God so that God could remind him, I'm not scared of Jezebel. So that God could remind him, Jezebel's not a threat if I still have a plan for your life and still have work for you to do. He needed to be reminded that outcomes are not our responsibility. He needed to be reminded that outcomes are up to God and that our responsibility is to be faithful in our calling. He needed to be reminded that there was no threat, there was no queen, there was no result, there was no failure, there was no anybody who could separate him from God's love and purpose for his life. He needed to be reminded of his identity, that he was a called, commissioned, and cared for child of the one true king. And this is what God did for Elijah. God showed up and reminded Elijah that even when we go through hard times, if we remember who God is and remember who we are as a result, then knowing our identity changes the game. And the question is, how do you let God instill you with that sense of his identity and your identity? There's another book in the Old Testament portion of our Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes. And it's just a, it's a book of wisdom literature. A person that was just observing life closely wrote down everything that they felt like they wanted to pass on to future generations. And that writer said this, said, remember your creator in your prime. Maybe your translation says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
But the point is, remember your Creator before the days of trouble arrive, is what he says. Remember your Creator before the days of trouble arrive and those years about which you will say, I take no pleasure in these. Before the sun and the light grow dark, before the moon and the stars grow dark, before the clouds return after the rain. And the writer is saying, if you will remember and instill in yourself a sense of who God is and who God has made you, then that's a spiritual tool that will help you in the darkest days of your life. 